take to lure manufacturing jobs from China back to the U.S., and are we prepared to succeed? Hi, everybody. I'm Bob Bowman, Managing Editor of Supply Chain Brain, and this is the Supply Chain Brain Podcast. There's some question as to whether manufacturing work is really fleeing China in large numbers, and if it is, where it's going. American workers would love to have those jobs back, and with wages rising in Chinese factories and companies discovering the hidden cost of making products so far from end markets, they have cause for hope. At the same time, China's not exactly ready to let go of the business that has been the primary driver behind its economic growth over the past two decades. The recent devaluation of the yuan suggests that China is well aware of the need to keep its manufactured exports competitive in world markets. Meanwhile, though, there's a big push by American interests to bring the work home. Today, I'm speaking with Harry Moser, founder and president of the Reshoring Initiative. He'll fill us in on the organization's activities in support of reshoring and talk about the factors that are driving it today. And he'll consider the question of whether the U.S. has the workers and the skills to handle the surge of business, especially at a time when productivity is more essential than ever before. So here is my conversation with Harry Moser. Harry Moser, welcome to the program. Great to be here, Bob. Tell me a little bit about the formation of the Reshoring Initiative. Well, I've got two stories I, I often tell on that. There's the emotional story and the practical story. And the, the emotional side is that I grew up in Elizabeth, New Jersey, right across the river from New York. And the, the biggest thing in town was Singer Sewing Machine. And the Singer factory there 100 years ago was the largest building in the world when the U.S. dominated world manufacturing and and uh, everybody had a sewing machine. And uh, my grandfather was a foreman. My dad was a, a ran about a third of the factory. I worked there six summers in high school and college, and I drove past five, ten years ago, and it was all gone. Now, the, some of the buildings still standing, but there's Singer sewing machines are made outside the country. And then uh, throughout my career, I sold machine tools and foundry equipment, and I'd drive past factory after factory and company after company, and they were just gone, just totally, totally gone. And so for that emotional reason, I said, somebody's got to do something about this, and, and it might as well be Harry. So so I did it. And the practical side is that I was leaving my job being phased out as president of uh, Agi Charmé, a machine tool company, big machine tool company. And I had three years of transition to do whatever I wanted, and I had the time and the resources to uh, to found the initiative. This is when? I officially started it in 2010, 2011. So what exactly is it? Is it an informational and educational initiative? Is it profit or nonprofit? What exactly is this, is this animal we're talking about? Yeah, it's a not-for-profit, a 501c3 not-for-profit. Uh, it's 
information, as, as you mentioned, uh, but it's more than that. Uh, we're, you could think of us as a think tank. Uh, you could, we, we provide the kind of data about reshoring that you'd expect to get from the Commerce Department or the Labor Department, but they don't track it, so we do. So we provide the data uh, on everything that's happening in reshoring and somewhat on foreign direct investment. And then we promote it. I give about 100 speeches a year around the country, including interviews like this. And then by that promotion, we attract companies to come to the website, find the data, see that other companies are reshoring, decide to reevaluate, and then use our total cost of ownership estimator to do the reevaluation. So we, uh, we, we also uh, consult. We, we help companies make the decision. We help states, specifically Pennsylvania and Mississippi, convince their companies to reshore. So we're much more than a, than a just writing and talking uh, or a think tank. We, we actually go out and enable and, and make the thing happen. Do you lobby or testify before congressional committees in favor of legislation that would promote reshoring? We're, we're not allowed to lobby because we're a, a 501c3. We can advocate. And so we certainly advocate. Uh, uh, I have testified before House subcommittees on the subject and been involved in other political hearings and press conferences and things like that. We believe that the we, we should probably not have legislation that specifically targets reshoring, like credits for tax credits when you reshore, this kind of thing. We think it's better to reduce the overall corporate tax rate from, say, 36% to, say, 20 or 22% and get rid of all the complications, all the special deals, all those things. And so I'd be a hypocrite if I asked for them for reshoring. So since the initiative has been launched, what kind of progress have you seen out there to date in terms of actual reshoring of manufacturing back to the U.S.? It's best to take maybe a 50,000-foot view and compare, say, 10, 12 years ago to today. And so in 2003, we were offshoring an additional about 150,000 manufacturing jobs a year and reshoring and foreign direct investment 10,000, 20,000. So losing about 140,000 manufacturing jobs per year. And by 2014, uh, we were at least break even. We The rate of uh, offshoring and of reshoring and foreign direct investment were about equal, somewhere in the somewhere in the area of uh, fifty, sixty thousand each. A little positive for the net inflow. So we've reversed from 140 negative to plus 10 or 20 positive thousand. The jobs that left are not the same though as the jobs that are coming back. Exactly, are they? Certainly, they're not exactly the same. But if the jobs had not left and you were making widgets of some kind 15 years ago, 10, 15 years ago, and you were making them today and you were competitive enough to survive, you would not be making them the same way you did 10 or 15 years ago. So we've had significant productivity improvements in what we kept, and therefore when we bring things back, we get at least that much productivity improvement. In general, you have to be highly automated because the U.S. labor costs are still, say, four or five times the Chinese, and to overcome that wage differential, you need uh, significant uh, advantages, such as automation. 
For a while there, it looked as though China was cooperating with you, allowing for steep increases in wages in Chinese factories, trying to turn its economy around to more of a domestically oriented production environment, which would inform or, or I would think would aid the bringing of manufacturing for Western consumers back to the West. So I guess those were good things as far as you were concerned, right? Those were good things. And, and I'm convinced that the Chinese still want to increase consumer consumption in China. It's just hard for them to do because those people have been through the tough times and they, they like to save 40 or 50 percent of their income as opposed to Americans who save you know, 2, 3, 4, 5 percent of their income. So, so it's a huge uh, societal behavioral change that the Chinese are facing. But we, we'd love to see the Chinese significantly raise their currency. Like, you know, I, I'd like to see it go up 50, 60 percent. But they, they're, they're afraid to do that because they they know that their unemployment will increase and they'll, they'll have political instability. So they're, they're caught. Well, in addition to that, uh, China speaks now of a labor shortage in, in key areas of, of the country, which is something that one might never have imagined possible in the world's most populous nation. And yet in Guangdong province and elsewhere, they can't find enough people who want to work in the factories. So there again, a positive trend for you, right? Is yeah, that affected you? Those are, those are good, good things. Uh, they, there's, there's two factors causing that. First, things have been pretty good in China for now for 10 or 15 years. And the new generation, the 18-year-olds, 25-year-olds, they don't want to work in the factory putting semiconductors on the chip or putting the, the uh, printed circuit board in the, in the Apple iPhone kind of thing. So, so they, they, they want to have a job more like the average American's job. That's one factor. Second factor, the, the demographics. The Chinese put the one-child policy in place uh, about 37 years ago, and as a result, they're having one kid maybe half as many as they would normally have, and the Chinese workforce is dropping at approximately 3.5 million per year at just at the time when when their demand for labor has grown significantly. So that, as a result, they've been having these roughly 15% per year wage increases. China was under a lot of pressure for a long time about uh, about the yuan about its currency being too weak and indeed in the last few years it's been creeping upward and yet all of a sudden now in the last few weeks and months it's plunging again perhaps in concert with the plunge in the chinese stock market so what has been the impact of the devaluation or the weakening of the yen uh has that kind of put a put a you know a wrench in in, in this trend and, and caused some problems in the reshoring side first i would uh I would not characterize it as plunging. I, I checked on the statistics uh, last night, and the Chinese currency dropped by about 3%. Stock market plunging may be more accurate to say, but but definitely it is going down. In, the no no question it went down, but, but it yeah. plunged sounds to me like a little more than 3%. Our best estimates are that when a currency, a foreign currency, drops by, say, 10%, they're price in U.S. dollars of the products they sell us drops by maybe 3% because only the labor portions and maybe the rent and the taxes are really effectively in that currency, whereas the steel and the aluminum and the copper and the oil, the machine tools, those are world-traded commodities that if the dollar price stays the same, even though their currency drops. 
And so therefore, you know, whatever percentage, say the labor and the services portion of the product, that that will drop. And we, we think that's sort of 30, 40%. So, uh, so therefore, a 3% drop in the currency is probably only a 1% or 1.5% uh, reduction in the U.S. dollar price of the Chinese product. And at the same time, you're having their wages continue to go up. Yeah, but you would like it to go the other direction, would oh, well, you not? Yeah, the problem isn't the 3% drop. It's the fact that it wasn't 50 or 60% higher before the drop. <laughs> yeah, and as you say, it's not really realistic to expect that China's going to undertake anytime soon a dramatic increase uh, strengthening in the yuan. Yeah, there is some, at least the words that they've said for their uh, currency uh, reduction is that they're they're moving the currency to be uh, a market uh, traded currency so that it could be part of the I think the IMF uh, basket of cur- currencies something like that and, and therefore if they're actually going towards a market based currency in the long run if their economy stays stable then given their trade surpluses and their growth I w- I have to believe that their currency will rise but it's it's going to be a long painful process. What have been the industries in which you have seen the greatest amount of reshoring in the last few years? We track the uh, reshoring and also the foreign direct investment. And the the number one industry in terms of jobs has been transportation equipment. So the, I'll give you some industry names that are more or less NAICS code industries. So transportation equipment, number one. You know, number two, electrical equipment, appliances and components. Three, computers and electronic products. Fourth, machinery. Fifth, rather interestingly, apparel and textiles. So the apparel uh, category of industry that that looked like it was entirely gone, and and in fact our production was down to about two and a half percent of our consumption, the rest being imports, rose by a half a half a percent or one percent in the last year. So so a small Absolute change, but a huge relative change. So interestingly, that some of these categories where where you might have given up seem to be showing signs of life. And yet the biggest noise or the biggest PR uh, visibility in reshoring always seems to be on the CPG consumer products and big retailing side. For instance, you just have concluded a, a big initiative with Walmart or just undertaken a big initiative with Walmart. So that's where we see a lot of the headlines, right? Yes, we do, and and certainly uh, apparel, you know, fits yeah. very nicely into that category. So what we've done with Walmart is provided a range of resources for their suppliers. So when the supplier is shaking his head and figuring, saying, "I can't figure out how to make that here and sell it to Walmart at the same price I used to sell the Chinese or Indian or whatever product," that company can now come to our website and find resources for retail suppliers, and it will help them figure out uh, whether it's time for them to make the move, uh, how to reevaluate for specific products and pick the right products to focus on, how to increase the competitiveness of their factory via lean, via uh, automation, uh, via skilled workforce, uh, how to make sure that their product meets made-in-USA labeling requirements from the FTC and from California, how to get financing uh, for their effort, because it's going to take maybe a new factory, new equipment, new training, new employees. So we've we've lined up 35 uh, trade 
manufacturing trade associations, uh, commerce, U.S. Commerce Department offices, and uh, a few manufacturing companies, each of whom has put up a, a contact person who can be directly contacted via the resources page so these companies can get the help they need to make that admittedly uh, not easy transition from offshore back to the U.S. I would guess you would want to be hyper-aware of the sincerity of the companies that step forward to partner with you or just announce reshoring efforts to make sure that you're not being used just as a PR uh, move by these companies when, in fact, only a relatively small portion of their total manufacturing or their, or their, or their total buy is really coming from do, uh, domestic sources. So what do, you, what do you do to make sure that, that you're working with partners who truly are sincere about doing this? To some extent, we contact them, but it's very hard to get them to talk. They've got most of them have tight PR controls on what they do. We actually find the opposite is true that many companies don't want the information to get out about their reshoring because they either don't want their competitors to know how well it's worked for them, or because they're they don't want a negative reaction with the Chinese or the other country from which they are. Reshoring. Yeah, but they get they get positive reaction on the part of the you know the value of the made in America thing. I, I would think I, they I would agree. they would want to get the word out. I agree, but but, they, but many of them, maybe smaller ones, uh, are are reluctant to do so. I, I met someone a week ago, and I wanted him to give me data. He's nope, don't want my competitors to know how well it's working. Uh, huh. one, one thing we do to to, to cross check, uh, we we track every case, every published case of reshoring. So let's say there's an article written and it mentions, amongst other things, GE Appliance Park or Walmart's program. And then we, we find all the articles that mention that case, like GE, and we have, imagine a row and a spreadsheet, one row of all the data from that article about uh, GE, and then we pull from maybe from 20, 30 articles, we pull all those rows together and we look for consistency across all those articles to, so that we, our conclusion about the company is the consensus from all the reporters, all the interviewers, all the everybody that's, that's dealt with that subject. So we, we, we believe that, that by uh, dealing with that consensus that we're eliminating at least some of the error, some of the hype that might otherwise be caused. Now, during the height of the offshoring mania, whatever you want to call it, yep. aspects of U.S. manufacturing capacity were essentially hollowed out. The question I have now is, as this work comes back to the United States, are the skills still here to support it? In general, the skills are here, often not in the quantity that we need, and in some cases not in the quality that we need. If you compare us to China... We certainly have, on average, better quality of precision machinists, tool makers, these kind of things. Uh, if you compare us to Germany, we don't have either the quantity or, on average, the quality because they have their exceptionally fine apprentice programs and they get kids who would normally go into a university here or instead they become tool makers, welders, precision machinists, what have you. So, so we, we're sort of average or weak in terms of our skilled workforce, depending on whether you compare us to China or you compare us to, to say, Germany or Switzerland. Uh, but we still know how to do almost everything. Uh, it's, a, it's a question of motivating more kids to more of high school students to, to see that manufacturing indeed is an exceptional career 
that the pay, there's a lot of people out there with these skills making, you know, $50,000, $70,000, $90,000 a year with, with overtime, $100,000 a year. And understanding that if they go to university and study English or history or philosophy, they probably won't make as much as they would if they became, went through an apprenticeship and got those skills. So it's, it's, a, it's a big challenge to convince uh, our society that, that those are, first, that those are good careers, and second, that those are stable careers, and the best way to show them the stability is to document the extent of the reshoring trend, because then they'll see that it's not going away, it's coming back, therefore it makes sense to, for Susie to become a welder. Wouldn't it be ironic if we brought all this work back to the United States and then had to offer special visas to immigrants to come in and take the jobs because we didn't have enough people who could staff the factories domestically? Well, well to some extent, that does happen. And in the IT field, there's a lot of H-1B visas brought in, a lot of dispute about it because they, the companies claim they can't find enough people with the skills. The you know Other people say that it's an effort to bring the wages down. So, But, but I think there clearly are skill shortages in manufacturing the number of 600,000 is routinely presented based on survey results. So it's, it's a substan- substantial shortfall in the skilled workforce. Now, you encourage us to think differently from how we have thought in the past before. We were just thinking, well, labor's cheaper here or labor's cheaper there, and that's where we're going to go. You promote the idea of total cost of ownership. Others have called it total, co- total landed cost. You, in fact, have a TCO estimator on your website. Tell me about what goes into the total cost of ownership. Okay. Let me nuance that a little more. Uh, Some people look at wage rates, as you discussed. We believe the most common decision basis is price, uh, purchase price variance. Where can I buy that product for the lowest price? X works from that factory. The next step up from that would be landed cost, as you mentioned, which might be that X-Works price plus duty freight and packaging, for example. Uh, but we, our total cost of ownership would add to that the carrying cost of inventory, the, the travel cost to check on the supplier, the, the intellectual property risk, which is especially relevant in, in China, the impact on innovation when you, when you bring manufacturing and engineering back together so the engineering people and the and the factory worker and foreman can get together and optimize both the product and the process and therefore get the best possible product and the lowest possible cost. The opportunity cost, the, the consideration of how many orders you lose when you have a, a three-month uh, lead time from offshore instead of a three-week lead time from onshore. So consideration of all of these factors goes into the uh, total cost of ownership uh, calculation online at the website. Free. What would you what would you say to those who say that Mexico is the best of both worlds? It combines proximity to markets with access to uh, skilled labor, and um, and that's relatively inexpensive and ch- cheaper than U.S. labor. What about Mexico? Why not? I guess you'd say why yes, because the Mexico has done a very good job of attracting automotive, especially and uh, aerospace and uh, some other industries. So, so Mexico is, as you said, uh, uh, wage rates about like China's, but with a, but just about as close as Texas, so to speak. And so certainly it has attracted a fair amount. The most recent surveys that I have seen uh, show that Mexico's attractiveness to the supply chain decision makers has dropped over the last 
year or two, and the U.S. has risen, and partially it is for fear that Mexico will not solve its uh, corruption and violence issues uh, with which the companies do not want to be associated. But n nevertheless, Mexico is a is a valid competitor for the work that comes out of China, and, and but it's not just a competitor, it's also an ally. If manufacturing is done in China, if a product's assembled there, on the average, about 5% of the content is U.S. made. Whereas product that comes out of Mexico, about 40% of the content, the components, are U.S. made. So just by if the work is transferred from China to Mexico, you might say we get half a loaf. It's not as good as a whole loaf, but it's, but it's better than, than the 5% of a loaf we had when the product's made in China. Well, I will link to the uh, initiative's website as well as your page that is called Resources for Retail Suppliers. Also, your TCO estimator is in there and a very valuable tool for companies. So, Harry Moser, I want to thank you so much for familiarizing us with the work of the Reshoring Initiative and talking about the whole trend of reshoring and manufacturing back to the U.S. Thank you very much for being with us. Bob, it's been great to work, to work with you here. I hope look forward to doing it again. That was my conversation with Harry Moser of the Reshoring Initiative, talking about his organization's push to bring manufacturing jobs back to the U.S. We're online at www.supplychainbrain.com, where we post a new episode of this podcast for streaming or downloading every Friday. You can also read my Think Tank blog, watch thousands of videos, and access all of our other content, including the digital edition of our magazine. Look for us on Facebook and LinkedIn, and follow us on Twitter, at SCBrain. You can also download or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. Got any comments or suggestions on this or any episode? Email me at rbowman at supplychainbrain.com. See you next time. <laughs>